on this computer. We're recording. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm with Luke Thompson. Um, we're going to discuss. Um, well, we, we think we know what we're going to discuss, but maybe it'll turn into something else. And if it does, I, I can't guarantee that I will rein the conversation in because sometimes it's more interesting to let conversations go um, where they naturally go. But um, uh, I have a fledgling podcast called Universalism Against the World, um, uh, ironically enough. And uh, I've, been, I've, I've never had a guest on as of yet. I've been doing a lot of solo episodes, which is just me talking to myself, basically, or, or me reading um, essentially audio essays. They're just not written, um, extemporizing them. Um, and um, I've been doing that a lot, but I've been meaning to have people on. Luke Thompson is uh, definitely high on the list of people whom I would want to have on my podcast. Um, he's not uh, what you yourself don't have a platform per se or, or, or credentials, quote unquote, but you know, like neither do I. Um, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, you just sort of look at the landscape of people who are interesting and then select uh, you know, the interesting ones, and it's more or less orthogonal to, to credentials. Um, so, uh, and specifically the agenda, uh, if there is one, is, is to look at Luke's trajectory to his belief in universal salvation or reconciliation or Christian universalism um, uh, as a way of exploring, uh, you know, you know, not only how these things happen on the personal level, but, but also the relationship, theological interrelationships among various ideas. Because I think that, that universalism is, is, is an idea that, that connects with uh, so many issues. I mean, every topic in theology does, but, but universalism is especially, is especially central. Yeah. So with that being said, I guess I would just go ahead and ask you, Luke, to me, introduce yourself if you want um, and, and just like give a you know start start at wherever you think the beginning is but start start at sort of your 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 baseline theology uh, and tell the story as you have I think done at least in in, in parts or in pieces uh, elsewhere tell the story of, of sort of where you started and where you are now and sort of the logical transforms along the way Okay, um, so uh, I was raised, I've, I've said this before, religiously, um, kind of a, what I would call an evangelical mutt. Um, I grew up in a really, <clears throat> in a rural Midwestern place, very rural, like as rural as it gets in America, really. And, uh, and, and so the, I mean, it wasn't, it's not like a highly edge. It's, it's a very um, extremely blue collar. Well, I'm not even blue collar. What's below blue collar? <laughs> like it's just, There's nothing below blue collar. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even, I associate blue collar with like. I was blue collar too. Yeah. Just like working class, but more like industrial urban. So, it, I mean, it's just like. Oh, I see what you're saying. Rural, you know. Blue collar um, and rural. Yes. Um. So, so what that meant theologically and, and church-wise is, I mean, there were different churches in, in the town where I grew up. I grew up in the country, so I wasn't even in the, the very small town. 
that my house was most proximate to. Um, so there were, oh man, I'm trying to think. There was a we- there's like a Wesleyan church. Uh, there's Lutheran church, Catholic church. Um, and then there was maybe, I don't even know if there was a Baptist church, actually. There's so many, I mean, there's a lot of churches, even if you're in a rural place. But the church that I grew up in technically was probably, there were two. One was a uh, evangelical free church. And then another one was kind of a, a Methodist church. And, and, and I'm sure the theology that was there and through the pastors was probably akin to those somewhat, but it, but it just wasn't, none of the culture was theological as such that like all of these, right. All of these conversations that we have and that people talk about, like whether or not it's Calvinist or Arminian or baptism, it's just, it was such a, it really is so nominally kind of culturally Christian that like those kinds of debates and thinking just never even arose so much so right. that when I, as I got older, because really I would say my theological awakening and really um, coming into an adulthood where I was, um, and you know, sorry about the platitude, but making my faith my own and trying to figure out what I thought about things didn't even really happen until after I got married and, um, and I moved to Minneapolis with my wife. So um, that's when it really began. And we were trying to, it was really such a, and I suppose this is just how it happens with everyone. Us moving to Minneapolis was such a, I mean, really such a culture shock because I had grown up such a rural kind of country kid that, and I mean, people may think this is laughable who, you know, have grown up in bigger cities, whether it's like New York, Chicago, or, you know, even cities in Texas or something. Texas is a little different, maybe. Um, But, you know, Minneapolis was such a big city for me that it was a, it was just really a, um, somewhat liminal moment where where you're reorienting and refiguring out who you are and how you fit in in the world because it was just so different than my upbringing yeah so, i mean it is relative but there at, at the same time there is no difference like the difference between zero and one so mm-hmm. if you go from not a city essentially to to a real city that, that's yeah. going to take some adjustment yeah and um so then I was trying to figure out what, what church we should go to because I had kind of, I had always been raised Christian and thought of myself as Christian. Um, but the reality is, is that during high school and college, I was um, in no meaningful way. I, well, I mean, depending on how you frame it, I mean, I just wasn't living a very uh, morally Christian life. I mean, somewhat it's stereotypical, you know, it's like you're going to church I was going to church somewhat regularly and thinking myself as a Christian, I was involved in like campus ministries at college, but like I was also partying all the time and doing all the things that come with partying. I mean, very regularly. So I was kind of living in two worlds. And, um, and then when I moved out here with my wife, I was thinking like, well, now is time to like just basically really grow up and fi- and start going to church and figure out, you know, if this is something you want to take seriously, well, let's take it seriously. So um, I was, when we moved out here, interestingly, and this will be interesting to like theology people, theological people, at least within the American landscape, I was reading two books simultaneously. One was uh, John MacArthur's book, Hard to Believe. So John MacArthur is this kind of very uh, just kind of stereotypical classic 
um, Calvinist, but not like Calvinist, Baptist, dispensational, very, um, he's almost like a archetype of what you would think of as like a certain stripe of post Puritan Jonathan Edwards, but yet fuzzy, non-denominational, but Calvinist, just archetype of a Christian. You know, this is MacArthur Bible, exegesis. You know, he had this radio show growing up and um, put out tapes and things. So he's this guy that had a huge influence on American evangelicalism. So I was reading his book and I was, you know, very vaguely familiar with him. Like not, because again, I'm coming out of that culture of just not having any of this solid in my mind. So this gets into the irony of these two books that I was reading. So I was reading his book, but I was reading that side by side with Greg Boyd has a book, Letters from a Skeptic, which is Greg Boyd is kind of one of the prominent thinkers around, he's hard to categorize too, but around open theism. And so, I mean, if you just, if you disregard all the stereotypes about Greg Boyd, there's a lot of people who think things about Greg Boyd that in my opinion are not accurate. Greg Boyd is very much an evangelical. He's very conservative in many regards, but because of his open theism, people think of him as like, I don't know, um, something other than what he is, I think. He's, he's really a very traditional classic thinker in many ways. He's just an open theist, you know, whatever you think about that topic. So I'm reading these two books and I don't even know, like I wouldn't have known what Calvinism was at the time. I wouldn't have known what open theism was at the time. I'm just reading these books almost just kind of as like a somewhat blank slate, you know, not completely because no one is, but, and then also while trying to figure out where we go to church. So we kind of church hop all over, we go all over, we go, to, we try out this big church, this big church, you know, this is before the internet. So you're going off of, I mean, or the internet wasn't like big then, you know, I remember when we moved here, we were actually using like physical maps of the city, trying to figure out where to navigate stuff which is just crazy at the time like we it took us like a long time to figure out where our closest grocery store was and how to get there which just seems crazy to people that are post-internet but um so uh we we went to a lot of different churches we we checked out uh woodland hills which is greg boyd's church i actually had a meeting with him where i sat down and talked to him which you know i mean it speaks to my personality and my character you know it's why i'm it's what, probably why we're having a conversation, why I'm part of the little online community that I am. I'm just very passionate and outgoing, and and I will just almost naively or, um, you know, um, happily pursue things that most people just wouldn't even think to do because they're just like, why would I, you know, just personally email Greg Boyd and try to have a conversation with him. And I was just like, I don't even know who he was or anything. I was just like, let's do it. Wait, so let me clarify. Were you in the same geographical area area as, as he? Yeah, he's in Minneapolis. So where Okay, right. So so um it seems like his church might be a safe place for an outlier to end up. So was there any specific reason why you were too heretical for Greg Boyd or what? No, no. And I mean, and it would be. I think I think Boyd is much more um, even though he is really conservative in a lot of ways, I mean, and this speaks to just how these things work when you are a minority of any kind. I mean, this is where like, uh, you know, I could sound social justice warriory to an overly politically conservative person. It gives you, and this, our mutual friend, Sam is this way. 
when when you are somewhat of a fringe outsider minority in a in more in more dominant cultural landscapes you you learn you have to learn how to operate as a minority there's certain there's certain um standards that like the majority just take and and naturally it's this way that the culture i mean jordan peterson has talked about this, cultures are whatever is normative in a culture is how a culture will design its structures and laws and rules i mean that's just natural that's you're not gonna you're not gonna structure your society around the exception to the rule. You're gonna structure it around the rule. I mean, that's just, that's what makes sense. Why would you do the other way? The other way. So someone like Greg Boyd would be much more tolerant of, you know, seemingly heretical or heterodox people because open theism is a, you know, very minority position. Um, and he's just a very open guy, I think. So we did go there for a while and we liked it. Um, or we, you know, we didn't go there for a while. We went there a couple times and I liked Greg Boyd a lot. Why we did, why? So ultimately where we ended up is we ended up at Bethlehem Baptist, which is um, John Piper's church. Um, and, and the reason that is, is because my mom had just heard of John Piper. Um, this is before my mom just, I think in the same way as me, you know, didn't, like she wouldn't have even been able to talk about like Arminianism or Calvinism or anything at that time, but she had just heard of Piper. And so we ended up going there and I, and we've had conversations about Piper before. I, I very much love and admire that man in a lot of ways. He is a, I don't know, you used some words to describe him one day when we were texting that I thought were very accurate. He is an incredibly zealot zealous he's yeah he's a zealot for sure but he is a he's not like a bigoted um hypocritical zealot i mean any more than any of us are he's a he quite literally puts his money where his mouth is he is particularly in the way that he handles finances like john piper could be you know he's not going to be like a joel olstein level because he's not preaching a prosperity gospel but john piper could be extremely wealthy I mean, he could, he's, he's sold millions of dollars worth of books. He's not a millionaire. He lives very modestly. I know where he lives. I know where his house is. Um, um, you know, I know facts about him, like when his youngest daughter was going to school at a particular school that was a private school or whatever, he took out a second mortgage on his home to pay for her tuition. You know, like that kind of stuff is for someone who could be a millionaire. I mean, and he's very intentionally structured his life that way. And so there are many admirable qualities about John Piper. And so even though I have, as you know, we'll play out, I have serious theological disagreements with him and I have particular concerns about um, church culture, not only in his church, but in just like the broader church of which the culture that he's a part of, I have lots of concerns about that, but it's not for, it's not because I think he's um, dubious or there's something wrong with him. That's just, you know, every, I'm not judging his intentions or anything. It's just a different. So we ended up there, the, the short version of why we ended, we ended up there because of my mother. And then, and I had just never, he's an, he's an amazing preacher. His, his oratory skill and passion is, is palpable. And I remember when we when we went there, he was doing kind of his famous preach through Romans. If you're at all familiar with John Piper, you know that he preached exegetically verse by verse through Romans. I mean, there were times when he would take 
he would preach for multiple weeks on like a phrase within a verse. I mean, he was just dissecting it. It took him years. I think he preached the Romans for like three or four years or something. And when we went there, he was doing that. And I had, I had just never heard preaching like that in my life. I was floored. And as someone who's, you know, somewhat intellectually inclined, I was just like, it was, um, you know, it was just right up my alley. Like I was just eating it up. I loved it, loved it. Um, and so I was hooked. And so we ended up there um, through a series of events and meeting friends, you know, I'll maybe share him with this, my buddy, Oli, who I still keep in contact a little bit. This guy, I met this guy, like a trying to connect with people because Bethlehem's a big church who's a, he's an like a, I think he's maybe third generation, definitely second generation halibut fisherman from Alaska who like, he has a crazy story. He got radically saved on like a halibut fish, fishing boat and ended up like somebody said, like, what good does it do you if you catch all these fish and gain the world and forfeit your soul? And he was just like, you're right. You know, and he just like got off the boat. I mean, it was very like Jesus and the disciples and went to Bible college. And then he met his wife, got married. And then for their honeymoon, they were either going to go and like basically just go and rent a house and live like either by John MacArthur's church or John Piper's church. And so they very like literally rented an apartment across the street from Bethlehem Baptist and just like hung out there for their honeymoon. Like that's just what they did. You know, these kinds of people, just radicals. I love radicals, man. And I met this guy, he was hugely into street evangelism. He has WDJD tattooed on both the outsides of his hands. And he just does it to just like start conversations. He's just waiting for people to ask him like, what's up with that? And he's like, let me tell you, you know? Oh, he's awesome. He's an awesome guy. Um, so I meet him and he turns me on to this church called Sovereign Grace Ministries, which, I mean, this is all going to be insider baseball for a lot of people, but if people have heard of CJ Mahaney, more likely Joshua Harris, they're kind of the most prominent people from within that movement. Joshua Harris, who now no longer identifies as a Christian, whatever, that's an aside. So I end up there. This is, I should, be, this should be more tailored to my universalism. Anyhow. No, That's this, this is fine. I mean, I, I think that for those hmm, for those who have ears to hear, shall we put it, this is going to be a very interesting okay. uh, uh, direction to go, especially I, I really like the, the, the details on John Piper because I think he's fascinating and, and this character whom you met because like on some level, you can have all the theological knowledge in the world, sort of analogous to catching all the fish, but the real yeah. dividing line at the end of the day between the baby Christians and the adult Christians is like, who's who's willing to die now? Who's yeah. willing to die to himself and 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 drink from the cup that Jesus drank from? Who's ready to pick up his cross and follow? I tell you, I'm not ready. Yeah, I'm, I, I I can't I can't sacrifice even just a little bit of comfort. You know, that's someday some days that's how it feels. Some yeah. days I, I I sacrifice slightly more, but I'm not in I'm not like that dude out on the street witnessing and at some level I, I, I couldn't do that convincingly um yeah um and and so but uh, that's that's uh uh neither here nor there but uh let's 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 continue on sort of you're talking about sovereign grace yes. ministries yeah so this so this i would say that church that church combined with bethlehem i mean it's now a denomination um, it wasn't at the time is probably where I spent my most 
my most formative years as a young Christian. I don't know. I mean, at the time I would have said, I would have said that I was not really, I mean, this whole perspective has changed also, but I would have, during that time, I would have said I probably wasn't even a Christian because I mean, I became this like hardcore card carrying Calvinist um, because of my time at, um, at Bethlehem and then also at Sovereign Grace, which is also kind of a, it's a young, restless, reformed, uh, kind of Baptist, charismatic, but uh, very Calvinist. There's just such an interesting relationship between Calvinism and fanaticism. Of course, it's it's not it's not easy to generalize. Some people are are, are sort of born into Calvinism. For me, yeah. when I flirted with Calvinism, it was two years before I had had any sort of uh, serious. Uh, model for doing theology and I was actually a physicalist and a, a determinist mm -hmm. by inclination mm -hmm. who was seeking irrationally or existentially for belief and and the idea of de de determinism I always thought that was incompatible with Christianity but I was a determinist and when I figured out there's determinist Christians that's what made me sort of be Calvinism adjacent but then there are some people who it's kind of like they get serious about Christianity, they started asking questions like, what do I actually believe? And yeah. then there's something that seems sort of hardcore and bloody and a little, there's a cost to accepting it. This is a hard saying, who can hear it? Yeah. That God predestines uh, uh, some number north or south of half of the human race uh, to, to hell from the beginning, before all worlds in his sovereign, wait, I thought he was loving. No, he's actually, he's, he's actually power. He's not love, he's power. Um, uh, McDonald has a beautiful quotation about that. He's like, mere lonely power has, has no power to create. Love is the power of power. Um, yeah. but, but anyway, these people worship the power of God. And, and there's like a high price to it. But it's like, if I can accept this price, then I can be in the tribe with boundaries, which is very ex exclusive in some way. You know, well, I mean, I don't know. Some people are Calvinists. They don't think about the hard cost of being Calvinist. I think some people, the cost is the is in some ways the the incentive but um anyway that's that, that might not have made sense but no i think there's a couple groups of calvinists just to to finish on kind of those lines of thinking um they're kind of the cultural calvinists that are more nominal that don't take it as seriously but then like the kind of evangelical calvinists the people who come into calvinists who really own it i think it's a combination of i don't know if it's a I mean, it is an elevation of power almost to the top of, of the value structure to a degree. I don't think they would ever say it that way. They would take, and, and I think to color it positively or to steel man it, it's more of a, I mean, they, they would talk about sovereignty because sovereignty is a, um, I mean, that is like a, a, key, a key understanding for them, even sovereign grace, right? That almost juxtaposition, almost paradox of sovereign grace. Um, I think they would call it like, it's and, and, the, and the positive aspects of it for me, just to make it personal again, and, and what I really loved about that church that's really formed me in my young, at least. I, uh, see, I would say I wasn't a Christian before, but I will just say, I would say it this way now, like my owning and my growing into, into an adult existential kind of Kierkegaardian Christianity where like it was, it had become my own. That definitely happened there. And, um, and what I really loved about that culture and still love about that culture is there is a, 
there's a deadly seriousness about God and faith and sin that I think a lot of, they're not flippant about it all. And, and they definitely take the intellectual aspects of it seriously. Although I would, I mean, I would still qualify that and have beefs with it because I think to bring in as like psychoanalysis and psychology and, and, and levels of um, even deep, I mean, deeply theological stuff, whether it's like, noose versus intellect stuff or like what i will talk about with the egoic intellect i actually think they have very deep peter rollins would put it this way and that'll just immediately stop the ears of some but peter rollins would say that they have their belief is is rooted almost in like a deep a deeper a deeper fear and disbelief they're almost using conscious belief as a defense mechanism about a deep insecurity and I think a, a lot of that is what's going on within that crowd. They actually are, are terrified of their disbelief, which is why they believe so ardently. Um, but, you know, whatever, you can't. They're terrified of hell, too. Which, I, think, I mean, as one should be. I mean, yes. yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, in some sense, my position is even if you espouse belief, you don't strictly know if you're going to hell or not. Uh, I'm a universalist and a lot of people imagine that that means no hell, but um, I, I, I believe in hell. I just think that uh, uh, people get out or at least, you know, I, I, I suspect that they do. I think there are compelling philosophical reasons to believe that they do. You know, people say philosophy isn't, isn't everything, but, or that, that, that Bi the Bible trumps philosophy. But my problem is like, what are you bringing to the Bible that's pre-biblical and, and, you know, not philosophical? It seems to me you don't ever really escape the philosophical, uh, the necessity of, of doing philosophy. Um, but um, no, it, yeah, they're, they're, they're terrified of, of hell. And, and there's this, you know, it's like we went from, in the Reformation, the idea that, uh, uh, faith is a necessary condition for salvation, but it's not sufficient. Works is also a necessary condition to the, the Reformed view that faith is necessary and sufficient. But here's the catch. It's like, if you have faith, you can be certain of salvation. But how can you be certain that you have faith? Right. Well, and that's what, that's what throws... Or something. <laughs> it, that's what throws... But that's what throws a Calvinist into... And I mean, and I've seen this anecdotally, not, I mean, you laid it out intellectually very clearly um, in an abstract way, but I've seen this very many times and within myself, uh, you know, anecdotally is that people who are Calvinists have that, they have that cognitive dissonance that you just outlined, which is, is very real, is that we are saved by faith and not by works. Yes. And so you can't, know that someone is justified based on their works, but then how do I know that I have faith? How do I know that I'm elect? Any, any Calvinist who is at all self-reflective and has any degree of, of ability or gift of inward self, you know, inspection is going to struggle with that question. Uh, they all do. They all do. Um, and, and I don't think, and this is what's hard about Calvinism is it's a intellectually at least i think it is a very it's the appeal but also the detriment is it's a very closed system it is it's this tight systematic theology and i don't think they have an answer to that question in the same way that like one of our previous conversations on randos i also don't think they have an answer for is like giving the metaphysics and the ontology of like what a man is i don't think they can do that either but um 
So then you had said something earlier about hell that I wanted to use to segue back into my story, if it's cool, is um, you talked about hell and how a lot of people think universalists just deny hell. Hearing my kids in the background squeal. <laughs> um, and so to, so one of the things that happened in my journey is so I was to get back to the specifics of hell is I was raised in just what I would say is the kind of the classic um, American evangelicalism, which is, so the perspective on hell is one that you're just given and inherited at birth. And you don't even know what that is. You don't even know that there's options. You just see hell and you, it's basically the far side comics, which really is, you know, which is um, eternal conscious torment. Um, and, and that was my view, although I didn't even know it. It's kind of like, it reminds me of that um, um, David Foster Wallace illustration from that famous speech, you know, fish, the, the two young fish are swimming along and they meet the old fish and he, the old fish is just like, how's the water? And they look at each other just quizzically and he swims off and they look at each other and they're like, what's water? You know, people who are raised in American evangelicalism water to them their hell water is eternal conscious torment and they don't even know it you know they're just blissfully well bl well not blissfully um torturedly ignorant of, of that view so um at one point i moved i'll bring in this has a few connections i'll bring in i was on youtube one day and i watched a um a video it just came with my algorithm but you know youtube is just this amazing thing very much like Paul Vanderclay's thing of Jordan Peterson or Jordan Peterson. This video popped up, which is a debate between uh, Chris Day, who I think you're familiar with, and um, I should remember the other guy's name. I never do. Um, but essentially, it was on. It was it was a exegetical scriptural debate on eternal conscious torment versus annihilationism. And I didn't even really know what that was at the time, but I remember watching the debate. It was about two hours. And I remember getting done with it and just thinking like, cause I was formed in these like exegetical sola scriptura reformed Calvinist things. And Chris Dade is like a hardcore reformed Calvinist preterist. He's interestingly, at least last time I knew, last time I talked to him, he was a Christian physicalist. Like we're not tight, but you know, I've interacted with him. So, um, so he's this guy that was just like, in all these ways, he was so close to me and speaks my language. But lo and behold, in this video, he's presenting this case for, for biblical, like annihilationism, this view of hell, which also can be called conditional immortality. Never heard of it before. And I watched this debate and I think just like, okay. And I, and I remember, I remember having this moment where I was just like, okay, well, Wait, like he, Chris Day clearly won this debate. Like he annihilated this guy, pun intended. And, uh, but I was just like, but wait, that's not the wrong, that's not the right view. But I said like, he was, he was the one that was making all the solid exegetical cogent points. The other guy was doing just, what he was really doing was really poor philosophy actually. And, and doing a bunch of like intellectual gymnastics and just making no good points. And I was just like, what? So then this sent me down this long path of discovering people like Edward Fudge and this whole, this whole wealth of rethinking hell and annihilationism resources and books and YouTube and things. And so 
when you said this before, Edward Fudge with hell, it's not that, I think this is an important thing for people who are somewhat, you know, and this isn't a good or bad thing, but ignorant of the doctrine of hell is that Christians who are in every, there's three orthodox views of hell, which is eternal conscious torment, annihilationism, and universalism. They're all orthodox. Christians have held them, you know, throughout all of history, which is, which is just baffling to most people. But then I think when you, so you talk about somebody like Edward Fudge, who he wrote, he's written the like class seminal text on annihilationism, which is called uh, consuming fire or consuming fire, I think. So that's basically the idea is all, all Christian, uh, all Christians would affirm hell, the reality of hell. I mean, there's maybe some Christians that would say it's merely figurative, but I don't know. That's getting, that's just a little too, that's a little too liberal for me. I think, I don't know how you'd really even talk about that or defend that. You'd have to just get way too fuzzy with the Bible, which I'm not comfortable with. Um, I mean, I know what they're getting at, but anyhow. So all yeah, Christians I don't know. I, I, you know what I, what I find interesting on the topic of hell, it's a little bit sideways, <laughs> but um, uh, I, I did an episode recently on just distressing near-death experiences because the typical near-death experience that you hear about is, oh, I went, I, I went, I went up out of my body. Um, there was a, a tunnel. There was a lot of love and light. I saw my family members and they were like, we love you, but it's not your time. The end. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what most of it is. But you read the distressing ones and man, like you can't imagine, you can't invent this stuff. Sorry, um, I'm having an interrupt. Just pause. You know, okay, we're re-recording. There, there was a brief interruption and both of us sort of lost our train of thought, but it doesn't matter. It's all related. See, the yep. thing is universalism is so interesting. What's one of the most interesting things about universalism is the way that it is um, so bound up with conceptions of hell. You would think, if oh, I yeah. talk about well, actually, I was talking about near-death experiences. Yes. Um, and, um, but, you know, universalism, you would think rather would, at, as you would with near-death experience, is like, this is positive. This is good. I have a near-death experience. I go through the tunnel. It's love and light. Universalism, same thing. You know, everyone's loved and happy and safe. But, you know, the reality is if you are thinking about universalism a lot, you're just thinking about hell and the limits of agency all the time. Um, and, and that's because because predicates are defined on their complements. You know, you know the thing through its contrast, its opposite or its negation. And, you know, the, 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 the true paradox of universalism is that you spend, if you think about it for any significant length of time, you realize you're spending most of that time just thinking about hell. Um, and and uh, in terms of an argument for the reality of hell, um, I find distressing near-death experiences like totally fascinating because like they're so hideous and horrible that you couldn't even imagine it um it's like it's not the kind of thing that you can invent uh and uh and uh for, for me well of course see the, the the liberal protestant or new age move there would be to say well it's just a projection of your own consciousness right yeah um and uh you know for me it's a very interesting question why it is the case that this world full of duality and darkness and danger and doubt and uncertainty um should terminate in a world where you know suddenly everything is love and light and there's no possibility of harm or danger or regret or anything in the afterlife the alchemist dictum is um uh as above so below but i almost want to reverse that and suspect that if this world has danger 
maybe that world does too that not every being you meet you know in the afterlife is going to be a a an entity that that wants to represent reality truthfully to you yeah. um, but anyway for whatever reason a lot of people just deny hell um but um uh, you were talking about annihilationism talking about you know yeah. fudge and yeah so so then that was kind of the next the next step on my journey is because of my um my very protestant taking the bible seriously and exegesis and um and very um seriously respecting uh the intellectual structure and rigor and being a calvinist and all that i mean those were just annihilation annihilationism just fits right in with that i mean annihilationism is so so basically i studied that topic for a few years and 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 became an annihilationist and what is interesting is i met a guy um, I actually ended up going to a Rethinking Hell conference in Dallas, where is which is where I met Preston. I had been interacting with Preston Sprinkle a bunch, but that's so we're buddies, and that's where I met him because that's where he kind of came out as an annihilationist publicly, um, as a you know somewhat. Um, he's a well known in like in the evangelical world theologian, um, and I met Chris Day and hung out with those guys, and they're all annihilationists. But I met another guy there who I actually lost contact with. I was going to keep up with him, who he's a professor. He's a philosophy. He was an associate philosophy professor, professor at a Texas school down there. I forget the name of the school now. I could probably find it because I had his paper. And he was doing a, a like a side, smaller side presentation at the Rethinking Hell conference that I went to in Dallas. Um, and he... I believe that his own personal self-identity is an eternal conscious torment view, but he is a fascinating guy. I actually, now that's making me want to reconnect with him and figure out who he was and stuff. Cause he was a great guy, but he framed it this way. And I think this is true. He kind of framed it almost around temperament where he said, if you're, excuse me, if your temperament is such that you are um, kind of like, a traditionalist and a, and a conservative type um, and you were raised in America, he said, you're probably going to, you're going to naturally be an, an adherent of eternal conscious torment. And then he said, if you're more of an exit, like a true exegetical type, that's a true Bible believing type person. And you're within, I would say the kind of the Christian rationalist frame, which is all adherents of Sola Scriptura are whether or not they know it. Um, he said, you're going to be an annihilationist. And I think that's like, I would affirm that. I really do. And then he said, if you're more of a philosophical minded person and existentially, he said, you're probably going to end up being a universalist. And I think that's, I think that really holds up and is very true because I've often, oh, different phone call. Sorry. They'll probably get that quick. Um, Cause I've also heard, um, I broke it down this way that I think if you just take the straight biblical text and rethinking hell is great at this from the old Testament through the new Testament. Um, and you just look at them from a kind of analytical scientific statistic statistics, let's break down the words into their root words and what they mean etymologically. And if you do all that 80% of the text in like a proof texting kind of rationalist way are going to be annihilationist. I think it's about 80%. I really do. And then, and I would argue that probably 
19.9% of the texts are pretty clearly universalist. Well, yeah. So for me, it, it's, 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 it's tough because it's like, how do you separate it from higher level interpretation? For me, for me, the real problem is, is the word um, Ionios or Aeonios, which mm -hmm. is actually, you know, literally it does not mean eternal. It yep. means the opposite in the sense that it refers to some age or interval. It's, yeah. it's not truly endless. It has a beginning and an end. And in many contexts, it's used, in fact, to mean temporary, you know, lasting some duration. Usually an ion is an age. It's like a lifespan. So if you had to translate that word, though, into English, you would say age of the ages? Well, you could like, like, um, aeon, aeonios, like tos, aeon, aeonios, something like that. See, my Greek sucks, but, yeah. um, uh, like unto the age of ages. Unto the age of ages. So it means, it means that so sometimes, and the thing is, it's a tricky word because sometimes it really does carry connotations of eternal mm -hmm. because, um, it means like of God as opposed to like of the natural world. Well, right. Um, Even there, like what you're saying, sometimes it means eternal. This is the problem in English is these things get equivocated because yeah. we often think, this is to your point, I think, we often think in English, people who are raised within biblical traditions, that eternal means qu quantity of time, unending quantity of time, which, but the biblical word eternal, I would argue, equally could be thought of as like quality of time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, yeah. it's, it's tricky, you know, I would say the the strongest um, arrow in the quiver of the particularist or the, uh, yeah, the, 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 the non universalist is Matthew 25, in which the, the goats are said to go to um, Ionios punishment and the sheep to Ionios life. The reasoning is the life that we have in Christ is eternal. And, you know, Ionios means eternal there. Therefore, we should assume it means the same thing for the goats. Yes. What I, what I say, go ahead. Finish your thought. What I say is that the, the trouble with, you know, it's like, so you would say Ionias means eternal, at least in that verse. That's what Augustine said. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem with the logic of same quantifier for uh, the two different groups of people in the same verse is that later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, as in Adam, all died. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Right. If that logic is like, you know, all dominating and all controlling. Yep. Then there's a contradiction in the Bible. Yeah. So one of these has to break. Right. And, and, oh, well, yeah, I'll let you, I'll let you. Um, so, so I've, I've just been, I went so deep down the annihilationist rabbit hole that that, that verse in particular gets treatment many, many times. And so I know what, what the like what a good annihilationist would say in response to this and i and i think it's still a bit a good argument is that the the problem with matthew 25 from a is it 25 25 46 is that what it is it's 25 i think i can't remember the exact verse but it's that verse that you're talking about it's like a classic proof text for eternal conscious torment people think but i would say the difficulty isn't with the word eternal and, and its parallelism the difficulty, and this is one of the best case for, for exegetical annihilation, is the word punishment. Because people in English, because of that whole like fish not knowing they're wet thing, they read a word like punishment and they read it without even thinking as punishing. Punishment is not, and I could, I mean, I'll, sh I'll share this with you and you can put it in the show notes if you want or whatever, is that Rethinking Hell put out an article. It's by Glenn... 
what is his name now? He's he's got his doctorate now. He's a he's a Kiwi. He's a New Zealander. Glenn, what is his name? It, whatever. He wrote a article which I think is awesome for like grammar nerds. It's on the polysemy of deverbal nouns, and so it's it's basically making the point that words in English, what a deverbal noun is, a word in English that is a that it starts off as a verb, but then but then it is made into a noun by adding meant. So punishment is one of those things. It comes from the root punish to punish, which is an active thing, but then punishment, it becomes a noun and it has a polysemy to it. It has multiple meanings, all of which are contextually driven. So what an annihilationist would say is, and, and there's really great things for it. So like punishment is one of the classic ones or, or um, Redemption is another one because you can flip it like this from Hebrews because a lot of people will say punishment means the act of punishing. So here's the illustration. Let me lay out the argument is they would say that punishment can mean either it, it can be either um, this ongoing process or it can be just like an act. So so they use this illustration because another word that's a deverbal noun is translation. So you could say these two things. You could say the translation lasted four weeks. Or you could say the translation lasted 2000 years. Those mean different things. One of them means the act of translating lasted four weeks. So that's like, that's like a verb. That would be like eternal conscious punishing. But the other one is like the translation, the, the existent thing lasted you know, this long. So, so what an annihilationist would say is that you cannot read the Bible exegetically and read punishment and automatically assume it means one and not the other. So what an annihilationist would say is like, yeah, eternal punishment, but the eternal punishment is capital punishment. You're dead. It lasts forever. You die and it lasts forever, which is not ongoing torture. It's like you, you're beheaded and you're dead you know, which is a, which is, and I've seen this many, many times. So what I just laid out to you is logically consistent. It holds up, but I've had this experience over and over and over is I see people who are completely ignorant of the arguments for annihilation, who've never been exposed to it, who've never thought about it. And you walk them through this and you explain it to them and they just go, they just go dead eyed. Like they cannot comprehend the words that you're saying to them because they're just like, what? How, how can punishment not mean eternal conscious tormenting? They just like, they can't, they've, their whole life, they've just read it and, and interpreted this and they cannot see it otherwise, seeing they do not see. Yeah, well, you know, the, maybe I can understand them a little bit because on some level, the idea of punishing someone by killing them is a strange idea because usually you know punishment is either retributive or corrective i punish you to make you suffer mm. but if you're dead you know at least in annihilationism the whole point is, is that in your death you're no longer suffering that's that's the appeal but like capital and, punishment right well that's that's the thing that i'm saying that's a strange phrase i punish you by killing you what does that teach you and how does that make you suffer um uh, so, you know, because normally we think of punishment as like yeah. as something that I inflict for a purpose that, you know, it has to do with either changing the behavior of that 
the, mm. the, the one who yeah. is punished or by making them really regret what they did, which also ends up changing their behavior. That's, I, I, I think that ultimately sort of the deep rationale for retributive punishment is, is actually correction. Yeah. Um, but, but, um, but anyway, but no, the, the, the thing is the, the annihilationists are, are not without um, their arguments. Each of these three views that they have advantages and, and, and disadvantages. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, but, and, and it, well, it's interesting because I think on some level, maybe the traditionalists are right to dislike annihilationism, fearing it as a sort of gateway idea because <laughs> For sure. How many, how many universalists were annihilationists before they were universalists? It seems very many. Um, yeah, and, and for some reason, for some reason, I mean, I don't know. I th do you think this is true that the bulk of people who are, the bulk of people who are Christians, who, who just have this kind of bred into them belief in eternal conscious torment as hell, like this is hell. It's kind of like the atonement is penal substitution. Like it can, like that is it. To, to say it's something different is to deny the whole thing. So like if, unless hell is eternal conscious torment, you're denying it. So do you think there's more fear among that general demographic? It seems to me that like universalism is the boogeyman versus annihilationism. A lot, annihilationism is like, and that's a fascinating thing because that goes to your point about what is, and George McDonald talks about this a lot, what is punishment? Like, is it merely retributive? Is it is it rehabilitative? What's going on? Because George McDonald is, is the best, huh? George McDonald is the best because he yes. he he captures everything when he when he phrases it as um uh, the the Calvinists or you know the certain stripes of Christians they they view Jesus as saving us from the punishment for sin. Yeah, but rightly understood, the punishment for sin is corrective and therefore good. But yeah. Jesus really saves us from it. And what is true death is is sin itself um and and that 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 conception is sufficiently i guess polysemous to, to allow you to to make sense of all the biblical metaphors at once because i said earlier the universalism the annihilationism the ect they all have their their strengths and then they all have their weaknesses but if you understand this perishing this death as as really sin itself then you can understand how hell is simultaneously a place of torment um, a place of destruction in which the sinful self dies mm -hmm. um, and, and a, a place from which one gets out in order to better jive with the, the Pauline versus suggestive of universalism. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, anyway, I, I, I was sort of um, potentially derailing us. Um, but but um, yeah, you were talking about annihilation and so that was my, so much, to, so if it is true that- It's being a little bit more acceptable to the traditionalists than universalism, because universalism is just like, you know, Hitler, Hitler commits suicide. And then when he wakes up, he's partying with Jesus in heaven. Right. Like, so, we, no... so this is the, this, that's the straw man, or that's the, that's the fear, I think, uh, of a lot of people who don't like universalism is that they think that universalism is, is a cavalier in regards to sin or holiness or something, which I think is a complete straw man. That's maybe true in some cases. I mean, I th I'm sure there are universalists that are kind of just like, kumbaya, whatever, it's fine. You know, like Jesus is forgiving, it's all good, <laughs> you know? But that's not, 
you know, all the universalists that I know in real life who are real universalists are just like some of the most radical, like taking sin seriously people that I know, you know, they're not, they aren't at all cavalier. So, but to the point of like that, of universalism being the great fear of people, whether or not it's accurate and that annihilation is a gateway case in point, <laughs> it was, I don't know that annihilationism was a gateway. I think it was a gateway in this regard that my annihilationism was for me the beginning of, I, I would never, I don't like, I wouldn't say deconstruction because deconstruction ha carries with it certain, um, it has certain baggage attached with it. And I wouldn't, I never went through a deconstruction of my faith I went through a deconstruction of my intellectual attachments that I associated with my faith, uh, which I think is very key. What annihilationism did for me was make me, I asked the question, I remember having this, I remember having this thought and this existential moment of just being like, when I finally became an annihilationist and like, and, and I had new eyes to see what I had never seen before and that former ignorance had gone away and I was just like, oh my goodness, this is like unbelievably clear to me. And I remember having this exact thought. I said, what else don't I have a clue about that I just thought was really clear to me? So what Annihilation did to me was it gave me, uh, I would to some degree, intellectual humility to just be like, I don't have a clue. It made me question, it made every, it put everything on the table intellectually. Um, which I think to a lot of people because of their temperament and their culture would maybe be terrifying. But for me, it never was terrifying and it never really affected my faith just because I think my temperament is one that's, it's very open. And so I never had, I never had the problem of conflating my ideas with God, with my faith and faith in God. Those two things were always completely different. And so when I, when I started doubting all this stuff and just trying to be like, what else, what else am I totally just oblivious about? My faith wasn't ever in question. And so then eventually what happened is I was a, an annihilationist for quite a while. Um, I'm trying to think of how long that would have been because um, at least three, three, four, five years. And, and my, like I didn't call my, I wouldn't have called myself just like a professing, like flat out universalist until a number of years, even after that, it was kind of like a slow move of where I was like, I'm a hopeful universalist, you know, that's kind of like the step. And then, and then eventually I just got to the point where I was just like, I'm just gonna, what really happened to me is, is where it's like, I'm just going to say I'm a universalist because, and really what happened is I got to the point of George MacDonald was big. Reading the book Lilith was really big. George MacDonald's arguments in his sermon Justice were really big. Um, but eventually I got to the point where it, it was really more about my move from, um, from Christian rationalism to Christian mysticism. And so I got to the point where I was just like, I don't trust my abstract intellect and my logic and my ability to dice facts and information in a disembodied way more than I trust my hope in what I intuit and perceive and wish and dream is the best story. To me, those, to me, those began to hold equal weight. 
And so like, even to this day, you know, and I'll talk about Preston in here, like me and Preston have a lot of these conversations privately where, where I think he's different than that. Preston is also a hopeful universalist. I think anyone who, ha who has a heart is, you know, somewhat, but they just don't, they just maybe don't see that, or they don't have the ability to see that from scripture, which to me is just like, it's an, it's an elevation of your ability to parse facts and logic than it is to trust in what you see as beautiful. And that's what happened for me existentially is I'm just like, to me, this is clearly the best story and more beautiful. And, and that, and that is, and I trust that now as just as good, if not a better guide of discerning truth than I trust my, my logic fact mind. Um, and that's really, when, when I came to that conviction, I was just like, I'm just gonna call myself a universalist. Like it's irrelevant to me. Cause like, cause all those annihilationist facts like that big thing that I walked you through like I still know all that stuff. I think those are good arguments. I see that in scripture too. It's just ultimately at the end of the day, I'm just like, I don't, my, my understanding and view of God isn't so much shaped by like, it's, it's, it's not scientific. Like I just don't approach the Bible like a scientist. I approach it like it's a love letter, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's going to sound like really, um, I don't know, fuzzy, slippery, postmodern, relativist. Like if, if, when you come at that from certain frames, that's what you're going to hear. I don't think it is. I mean, I think it has robust logical and philosophical arguments to defend it as well. But ultimately, I, Ultimately, I guess I think at the end of the day and whatever, I'll, I'll end it by in this spiel by proof texting scripture at you is like whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And faith is rooted in faithfulness and trust and is inherently intrinsically relational and personal, which is not cold logic. It's, it's rooted in desire and love and trust and i think those are things that many christians would affirm i just don't think they talk about their doctrine their faith in that way well yeah. i don't know how much time you have left um but it it seems to me we're we're at a point where it we should observe the the crucial distinction between hopeful universalism and sort of out, out and out um, uh, confident universalism. Sure. And because it's actually a very significant philosophical distinction between those two. And, and one of them is, it can be said to be led much more by the heart. And it's kind of like this almost C.S. Lewis type thing of you, you, you have to believe whatever you must believe about God in order to let him be the the ideal of goodness in your mind if you can't see god as commanding say the genocide of these canaanite children and have that fit with your idea of god as like the good maximal goodness mm -hmm. then that has to be let go and that you should trust like whatever your highest conception of the good is to lead you to god right kind well, of, otherwise you're lying to yourself like if you if right? your ultimate conception of good is not that, but you're like, I have to affirm it because it's this true thing, then you're- well, That's because God's goodness is something radically alien and other than what we call goodness, but we still call it goodness, but it's not actually goodness. Right. So just wrap your mind around that. Um, but uh, but um, 
no so there there's that there's that one sort of hopeful universalism Hansers von Balthasar he just he just did what I said he's just like Matthew 25 versus the verse in first Corinthians and just don't break the the tension sort of view the 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 hell versus existentially as like you know this is a place that you could end up but now you still have the freedom to choose and we also don't know uh whom god in his mercy is is going to spare from punishment uh, versus you know who who will eventually uh, uh be subject you know either through their own will or gods or both to that terrible final fate uh and you know then the, there's the other side which is you know confident universalism and and the reasons you have to uh, the, the reasons for espousing that are are interesting because they they they're they're pretty they they have to be capable of um some uh they they have to be able to lift a lot of weight you know philosophically speaking they have to be hardcore reasons um and uh you know, like david bentley hart uh his argument or his main reason for being a confident universalist was it has to do with the nature of the good and the nature of all human striving as being purposive and, and, and aiming toward the good. And that even when it, it um, falls short of the good, it, it was, it was still aiming at the good. And, and um, for Very me, it's Edwardsian. Hmm? Very Edwardsian actually. Oh, like Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he is, he's, I mean, he was, he was a capable philosopher, but at the end of the day, he was, he was willing to say that God's goodness is not goodness. It's schmoodness. We just analogically call it goodness for some reason. Yeah. Um, uh, right now, back to, yeah, David Lee Hart, good. Purpose. Yeah. And that, that's a close cousin to, to, to the reason that I am a universalist. It, it's, a, it's, it's the same reason just looked at from a different angle. Socrates said, no one knowingly does evil and yeah. the way i see it is like if the good is objectively good that means it's good for reasons mm. of which one is either ignorant or cognizant and if you're cognizant you're going to do the good and if you don't it's because you're ignorant um and, and and that ignorance it's like one is either responsible for it or one isn't and that speaks to or that gets at you know what the limits of human agency are, if any, and some people would like to pretend that there are none whatsoever. Um, and but you know that's 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 a premise that that Hart leverages as well: the limits of human agency. Something something there, like like the nature of the good um, as capital G good, and it's like sort of the 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 end and purpose of all striving, and the limits of human agency, and the fact that we we are not self-sufficient, autonomous, like radically. Um, self-sustaining, you know, beings. Mm. We, 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 you know, in God, we live and move and have our being. Yeah. And and um, so there's some sense in which God is ultimately responsible for everything, and the Calvinists sort of have that right. Um, God, as ultimate reality, cannot sort of wiggle out of it and say, "Oh no, that was you." It's like, <laughs> um, um, but you know, our friend Nate, he gave to me a very interesting reason from the heart, I guess. That that was also from David Bentley Hart, H A R T, um, and and it was to me like a, a very very good reason for for universalism, interestingly, but a sideways sort of reason, and that was um, from uh, the Doors of the Sea, where you just look at the utter abject, seemingly senseless um, suffering and horror of you know something like that tsunami, and then the sort of well, I don't know Nate's thinking behind it that well, but what 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 to me the linkage is it, it's it's almost an irrational linkage, like that that if there's this much abject uh, tragedy 
that it does have its obverse in, in some kind of final reconciliation in which truly everything is mended. Like, like, like that, that point of like maximal suffering and death, it, it does somehow uh, indicate a, a corresponding terminus or endpoint in which truly every, every tear is wiped away. Mm. And that, and there's no, there's no way of conceiving that other than that everyone is saved. Um, yeah. And, and, and like, that's, that's a, it's a very sort of powerful reason. It's not the sort of one, a sort of reason that I would draw upon apologetically, but, you know, I mean, ultimately, who knows for sure, who can claim to know, you know, that's not a thing that maybe, maybe I give that impression sometimes, but I, I don't claim to know with certainty that everyone is saved. Like that's, that's, it's kind of nuts. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know that with 100% certainty, there's different kinds of certainty, you know. This is the, I mean, this is the, and this is where I've kind of moved, I guess, um, personally, but I also think it's true philosophically. And I think a lot of um, <clears throat> the, the um, philosophic tradition in the West has kind of shown this is that I don't think, and these are things that I've said before, but I don't think that, I don't think that knowledge, true knowledge is something that can be, true knowledge is lived, true knowledge is rooted right. in being. And so the kind of, just to even speak of knowledge as certainty is to, is to necessarily abstract it. When you, when you make it like certain and universal and no longer personal, you're, you're divorcing it from your being. And I mean, and I guess, I mean, that's kind of an abstract thing to wrap your head around, but I think that it's true. And I would argue that no one, I agree with you. So everyone is agnostic in that sense. You can't abstract your knowing in that way and apply it to other people. Like the only way, I mean, this is probably a lot of what Kierkegaard is about. I mean, even though I'm no Kierkegaard expert, but like, and this is what faith is, is the only knowledge that you can have is personal. It's lived. That's what, that's what it means to know something is to embody it. This is why, I mean, this gets into, a, I mean, an aside, but maybe it's a plug for a future conversation. One that I want to have with Nate, with Sam, perhaps with yourself, is that um, when it, ultimately it's all about incarnation because your knowledge, when your knowledge is real, it's incarnated in yourself. Like that's what your real knowledge is. Anything that is real is incarnational. I mean, I would almost say it that simply, like whatever is real, whatever exists is incarnated. It, nothing exists that isn't incarnated. And I mean that like really technically, I think. And I mean, that maybe seems like just mere wordplay, but I don't think it is. I think it's rooted in like the deepest levels, the deepest fractal realities of of God and Trinitarian theology. I'm talking about something like final participation. Yeah, I, I think that is what we are. I think that is what we are becoming. So like in the same way, you said something earlier that's connected. Kalepa, I want to give a shout out to Kalepa because um, uh, Heidinger from the Discord community, but he said something um, responding to me, I think in a comment on maybe the Paul Vanderclay, Verveke, JP Marceau, like the most recent conversation. I don't know if you followed that, but it was about, um, and then I'll probably have to go after this pretty soon, but this is a really interesting, great idea. I'm giving my daughter a thumbs up in the window. Um, so I don't know if you remember when Sam Adams had John Verveke on his show and they talked about um, evolution and 
being kind of this, um, I can't remember if they were talking about it being like a Gnostic idea that, but essentially it's the idea that like the idea of an, there's like an idea of a crocodile and it's almost like a platonic ideal that evolution is this, is it kind of like this force that is trying on all these new forms in which it's moving all these different crocodiles and some die, but, but eventually at the end of that, it's moving toward this ideal form, which is the perfect crocodile. That's an interesting idea. And what I think is happening with us right now with humanity and what theosis and final participation and, and here I'll say salvation is, is that we are all the particulars of of an image of God that are moving toward the, the already existent fullness of what a real human being is, which is, which is the perfection of Christ, who is the full icon of God. And he, and he is this platonic thing that isn't a mere abstraction. It's the opposite of that. It's the perfect incarnation of that, which existed, which is the center of human history in which we are being driven, pulled forward into moving into and we are doing that collectively. We are doing that individually. We're doing that cosmically. We're being pulled into the fullness of Christ, who is the firstborn of new creation. I mean, I think that's what's happening. And um, so, I mean, I can't, I can't remember what was my jumping off point. There was some connection to what you had said. What were you just saying right before I went on that tear? Well, I, I was talking about, I was talking about, uh, David Bentley Hart was talking. Oh, we were talking about can one be justified in saying that 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 uh, what you know everyone is going to be saved, and then beyond that, we well, were talking. I think I know. So, like, so we were talking about certainty. Like, can I know for certain? Right. So and and we're of, just trying things on. Yeah. So it's kind of like this, um, and even that I think is really like this dualism between it's playing with this knowledge in an abstract way. Whereas I don't think. I actually think that whole game, like that, that I think most Christians, like Christian apologetics, like apologists are playing and Sam Harris's are playing. And most of the modern world is playing this game of like, how can we know what true reality is? You can't in the way that you're talking about knowing. You can't ever know what reality is in that way, but you can know what reality is in the way where you where you incarnate your belief and participate in that in that final full image and 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 live into that that's how you can know which is intrinsically personal Jordan Peterson idea where it's yeah. like you have to you have to take this tactic and employ it in the game of games over the longest of time frames and see if it actually works and you never actually know it you, all your knowledge is provisional uh uh you know until such time as it's actually as it actually sort of comes undone your ideas they they come undone they no longer serve as useful guides and yeah there's this sort of like ultimate you know almost arbitrariness to 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 what nature god ultimate reality the ultimate selection principle you yeah. never know it, like even god like it sort of has that unpredictability like what's he doing in the bible saying things that are like the opposite of what he commands us to do like uh abraham go sacrifice your child uh is like, like what is he doing uh and, and and so like it's this idea that there, there is perhaps something in god which is like t 
terribly and finally arbitrary? Maybe, I don't know. It's not even, it's not even arbitrary. Cause like, this is where I would, I was thinking about this earlier. I was having a conversation and um, with some friends around a bonfire last night. And, and I even, so I've talked to you about what I call the iconic vision or even viewing. I think there's a way to start perceiving reality. I love to talk about perception because I think it's, I think it's deeper than epistemology and like deeper than ideas and deeper than abstraction because perception is it's phenomenological and it's biological and it's like really fundamental just like how you perceive reality and and I was talking about it, and one of the ways <clears throat> I've been really just meditating and contemplating <clears throat> a lot on Jesus's seeing but not seeing because what is so fascinating to me about that is and I was telling my wife this is like fundamentally perception all perception whether it's sight touch um taste smell all of those things all perception is i'll just illustrate it with sight is seeing not seeing so what it means to see and peterson and actually peugeot talked about this really well what it means to see is that something some aspect some um particular out of the infinity of of what's available to you in your vision it's an it's infinite what you could jordan peterson talks about this when he talks about robotic sight they have a really hard time teaching robots how to see because how do you how do you tell them what to look at we don't you know you don't know um but all of your vision like me talking to you me looking at a lamp me looking at anything when i see what is happening is that my salience my focus my attention is 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 zoned in on one thing in spite of everything else. That's what it means to see. So seeing is not seeing, Very, really technically. You don't see everything else to see this. You stop seeing all of this to see this, but all your perception works that way. And that's in, inherently a hierarchy, that's what it is. You're elevating this thing in spite of everything else. And there's a way, I think there's a way percept like that just that happens to you on like the deepest levels of your being where you can begin to see reality in a way that is not that is non-dual essentially that isn't that isn't seeing that's seeing this and everything else at the same time but it's seeing this in light of this and yes this thing is elevated and salient and popping but you don't lose the forest for the trees you see both simultaneously and that's what iconography is you're not you're never like so then even questions like, it's the same way that you can say the church is the ark, is Mary, is the womb, is the cosmos. And you don't mean that as like mere metaphor or like psychological abstraction. You mean it symbolically. They're all the same thing. It's unity. You're starting to see unity amidst the multiplicity. You're seeing connections in everything. And there really is fundamentally a way where you start to perceive the world that way. And people who don't see the world that way or don't think they see the world that way will hear this and they think that I'm just, that this is just rhetoric. It's not, it's more fundamental. It's, it's really, um, it's a way of being in the world that I think changes the way that you see things. So that my whole point with that is so that the questions of like, the kind of, the kind of being who would ask, how can we know if, if the incarnation was a real historical thing or just a metaphor is an irrelevant question. 
like you don't even care about that question anymore like it just doesn't even like it it doesn't it just it's like water off a duck's back you know what i mean that's 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 a that's a hard saying um for me and for some people but no i do understand what you mean there, there's a sense in which christianity would be true even if it were not true because it's just it just remains psychologically and existentially true um, there, there are issues there, and I, I think about that a great deal um, in, in connection with, with our friend Sam's podcast, because, you know, I think whether or not the historical Jesus of Nazareth was and is God, it's like the idea of the ultimate Jesus um, exists conceptually, like as a, as a limit, uh, as, a, as a logical terminus, as, a, as, a, as an archetype. And so whether or not uh, it was embodied in a historical person, it still exists. But then, like, the question is, like, if God didn't perform that miracle, so to speak, if he didn't perform the miracle of the incarnation, what of significance changes? Is, is, is it truly the case that nothing of significance would change? Like, what if every miracle God did um, was actually a hallucination? And none of it was real. Um, now, like, the thing is, on some level, I feel like you feel like that's probably missing the point of all that you just said, but, but, um, uh, it, well, that, that's where my mind goes, you know, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just like incorrigibly sort of, uh, a, a little left-brained, uh, logic <laughs> chopper, um, but, um. No, it, I mean, it, I know what you're, I know what you're saying, and yeah. It, it, it's, it's a question that, 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 well, the thing is, I always, I always game things out, I think, to a level that most people don't. And then I asked like what appeared to me to be the next sequential questions because I'm very linear, but um, uh, I, 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 I travel a long way down certain logical trajectories. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, to me, it seems like if he didn't make that miracle real, why did he perform these other miracles or did he? And then what so, are the implications right. of this? But So in me saying everything that I said before that, where, where I was saying some of those questions you weren't saying that he wasn't real. You're you're just oh, saying oh. that even yeah, you 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 just you're just saying that it's it's ultimately of lesser significance. I'm just saying with... like the, the question just ceases to be valuable to me because I don't even I don't even see the world that way, which isn't to deny which I think a lot of conservatives fear is like some kind of postmodern tactic to deny historicity. No. It's not. It's just no. it's just seeing what's relevant over the longest of time frames. Because when you think about like a, a being like God, if you can call him a being, um, who who is like hypothetically ultimate reality, is not subject to any external constraints at all. Yeah. It's like you think about what is the highest or most valuable level of communication to him. It seems to me that it actually is like symbolism. That symbolism is the realest and deepest thing to God. Because on some level, that's all there is. Finally, is just communication. Well, it's just there's it's, no constraints that have to be navigated. There's, there's well, it's that book that I showed you before we started recording from John. Uh, how was Zizulas? Zizulas? Oh, yes, whoever. Yeah, yeah, whoever. Yeah, he's a. Uh, but it's communion as being. Yes, and and so the symbolic I do think is the deepest level because not only is it communication, not only is it linguist, not only is it word and representation, figure and ground. It's all of those things at once. But like a symbolic, the symbolic vision and the symbolic representation is is the unity amidst multiplicity. It's like what I was yeah. saying. It's Mary, yeah. Ark, world, cosmos. Well, if you think about it. Like the symbol is like all of those things are real. So like when you start perceiving the world that way, it's um, 
my family's going for a walk. I might have to bail quick. But when you start perceiving the world that way, it's like, it, it truly is when it's just like Christ was the rock that was struck that gave water, you know, or like Mary is, is the womb, is the world, is the ark. You know, when you start seeing all these connections that, that gave birth to what is, to, to the whole cosmos and to Christ, like it's all... It, it really is. There's a way to say this. And this gets into my like monism, dualism, Trinitarianism. The Trinitarian thing is like, those are all the same. And I mean that in the same way that like, God is one. Those are one in the same way that God is one. That's not saying that they are equivalents. It's not saying that they are identical replications, but they share in the same homoousia. You know what I mean? They're like, there, that's what a symbol is, is it's, it's pointing to the sameness, the unity amidst multiplicity. When one gets the idea that, it, that you know, if, if the real meaning of the scriptures is something like incredibly symbolic like this, that, you know, when Jesus opened the minds of his disciples so that they could understand the way in which he was really prefigured, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was like by letting them understand this, like uh, this, this profound symbolic language yes rather than stuff like well remember in isaiah when he said like you know yeah. it, it, the, the number of characters here was 53 and then well i don't know maybe it shades into that but but um it's it's not it's not like conventional apologetics see it's a well and this is why within orthodoxy john bayer talks about this well but he his classic sermon that he preaches all the time or teaching is on how, how we know Christ, how Christ is revealed to us, how you see him as he is. And his point, the cliff notes, is that it was no different. For, like, we, we assume that if we were there 2,000 years ago, we'd have just seen Jesus walk around and been like, there goes the son of God. And he's like, no, that's not how it would have worked. That's not how it worked for the disciples. It's not how it worked for Thomas. You know, it was the way that they saw Christ for who he was. And this is clear, even at, from an exegetical standpoint, when you look at the text, is... Jesus appeared to them the great well it's interesting that like the resurrected Christ very often was not seen for who he was and then and sometimes sudden, he just is yeah like, he's like he, he fades in and out it's like sometimes he's here now he's not it's like it's, it's tricky because he's like his godness is, is sometimes concealed and sometimes it's just like he just says follow me and it's like oh yeah okay yeah or they don't like weird, but... which is why all of all of reality again symbolically is incarnation is a revelation all of it and so all of a sudden he's in the great upper or he's in the upper room and they're all hiding and he just appears. That's just what the text says. And then he opens the scriptures and shows them from the beginning, the text concerning him. And then he breaks bread. So John bear is just like, what are the two things, the opening of the scriptures and the breaking of the bread. And then their eyes are open and they see him for who he is. It's not because listen, post-enlightenment Christian rationalists, apologists who think like, oh, he's right there. They just see him with their eyes and they saw the historicity of the resurrection they believed. That's not how it works. It's just not how it works. It didn't work that way for the disciples. Why is it gonna work that way for you? It's, it's, it's about revelation. It's about having your eyes enlightened. It's about if one of my favorite parts of the Bible is Matthew seven after the um, the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about if, if your eye is one, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, evil, divided, you could translate it any way you want, divided. If your eye is unified, one, your whole body will be full of light. That's what I'm talking about. 
That's what iconic vision is. That's seeing the unity and multiplicity. That's symbolic vision. When you, see, when you start to see the world that way in a non-dual way that isn't like, because it really is that. It's not monism, it's not dualism, it's Trinitarianism. And I would argue that fundamentally we all perceive the world that way. We just don't think we do because we layer on these levels of, of egoic understanding that, that we think it, that we, we tell ourselves is how we perceive the world, but it's not. We all perceive the world that way. I think that you did a very good job of articulating sort of what is distinctive in, in the way that you, uh, you see uh, spiritual things, the way that you approach uh, scriptures, uh, you know, your particular uh, version of, of, of Christianity, because we, we do all have our own versions. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm mindful that you, you have to get going. So I think this was a good note to end on. I think that it, it ended very well uh, ending on Christ as, as, because he is the center. It, it, yeah. it always does come back to Christ. Um, and so I think that that was, that was great. I think that that was, um, I think, I think this whole uh, conversation in my view was very successful, very successful. Nice. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on. It's always, I love talking to you, man. I'm glad that, uh, I mean, this seems like trite and platitude-y, but I'm glad, you know, God brought us together because. Yeah. You know, well, we're, we're different. We're different enough that, that there is something interesting that, that can happen. There's, because it's all about, it's all about the integration of differentiated parts or iron sharpening iron. Right. For sure. Man. Um, uh, and because, um, because the weird thing about us is, is how, is how differently we think, not that differently, but, 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 but really quite, quite differently you know it's, it's all it's all a matter of like resolution you know yeah. how different is different and but but um uh but the way that we're converging on the same final truth um which is you know god as a conscious mind in whom we live and have our being um uh a god who is what you know both imminent and transcendent a god who is love and and sort of the the inevitable ramifications of that idea um you know pointing toward a universal reconciliation it's like we both saw that but we we we, we saw it we reached it by very different uh routes yeah and so that's really what i wanted to highlight in this in this episode like a route to universalism it's very different from mine very interesting and um there's a, there's a lot of truth in it it's a lot of truth about contemporary christianity that that sort of uh manifest manifested itself uh, in this episode so thank you so much absolutely man it, it was a pleasure